Every Sunday of Advent, we'll engage with uh, the spirit of the season through some readings, prayers, and lighting of candles. Advent is a long-lost Christian t- tradition, one faded in our time, uh, that we want to revive and observe together as we come to one of the most significant remembrances of our faith. The four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day make up Advent, the season of preparation where we ready ourselves to celebrate the birth of Jesus. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or visit. It is a season that draws to mind the expectant waiting and longing for a Messiah. We want to intentionally recognize the Advent season lest the beauty of the incarnation of Christ pass us by while we hurry our way through December. We want to take hold of the opportunity to still our hearts, consider our way, and look to Jesus, the miraculous virgin-born Son of God who came to set us free. In this Advent season, we are reminded of how much we need a Savior, and we look forward to our Savior's second coming, even as we approach the celebration and remembrance of His first coming at Christmas. Now, you need to know this isn't us taking a stance in a war on Christmas or a cultural embattlement set to take back our holiday, but rather, this is a humble recognition of our own propensity to neglect and forget the staggering, undeserved truth that God came to earth. At the time of the birth of Christ, there was an entire people group waiting the arrival of the Messiah. The Old Testament prophets looked forward to a day when darkness would be invaded by light, when sin would be washed away, when at last God's covenant people would receive God's promises. They waited, they hoped, And they longed for the appearing of a Savior. And yet, for thousands of years, one by one, they passed from this world, never having received what was promised. The Apostle Peter highlights the longing of the prophets of God when he writes this in 1 Peter 1. The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. And Paul, he also tells us in Romans 8 that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There is this depth of longing for the Savior that existed until he came. The patriarchs, the prophets, the children of Israel, and even the created world itself were looking and longing for the arrival of Emmanuel when God would at last be with us. As we remember the coming of Jesus that fulfilled their deep hopes, we consider our own waiting. We acknowledge the aching hearts that long for true hope and home. Together, we experience Advent. Waiting, hoping, expecting, longing. These are words that don't have much meaning for us today in the days of Netflix and Google and Keurig. 
and clickable pornography. In light of our world of instant gratification, do we have any hope of understanding what it means to wait? Will our souls ever feel that feeling of expectant hope for Christ's coming? Can we truly experience jubilation if we haven't first deeply felt our need? With these questions in mind, we come to align ourselves with centuries of Christ followers who have acknowledged the need and hope for a Savior by commemorating these four weeks of Advent. With the lighting of Advent candles each week, we will, we will mark our progression towards Christmas. Each Sunday, we will identify with the saints of old as we wait and experience longing just as we see the need for a Savior that still remains today. Will you join me in this first of four Advent prayers? Dear Heavenly Father, it is the first Sunday in Advent, a season of anticipation and celebration, a time to reflect on every good thing you've already done for us in Jesus and the glorious things yet to be realized. You've made promises that you alone can keep. You give peace that can be found nowhere else. You've pledged a hope that you alone can fulfill. We praise you. We bless you. We worship you. As Advent progresses, fill us to overflowing with gratitude and humility and joy. Father, would you grant us intense longings like the ones that filled the hearts of the prophets. The promise of grace and the spirit of Christ thrilled them as they anticipated the era of the Messiah, the time when you'd begin to make all things new through Jesus. And God, would you grant us joy-filled intrigue like that felt by the angels. Your heavenly servants were overwhelmed as they pondered your unfolding story of redemption and restoration for men and creation. We are the people that the prophets were speaking about. We are the people that angels envied, hallelujah, many times over. O Lord Jesus, multiplied glories have already come to us, and many, many more will follow, all because of the sufferings you offered on our behalf once and for all. Indeed, every promise God has made finds its yes in you. May this entire Advent season bring us back to your manger, back to your cross, back to your empty tomb, and move us forward with you into your new creation story. Long expected Jesus, you have come and you are coming again. You are the desire of every nation. You are the joy of every longing heart. By your all-sufficient merit, you have raised us raised us, and you will raise us yet. So very amen, we pray with gratitude and anticipation in your loving and triumphant name. Amen. Romans 13 says that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is near. And so we light this candle as a sign of the coming light of Christ. Advent means coming. We are preparing ourselves for the days when the nations shall beat their swords into plowshares, as Isaiah said, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Faithful God, your promises stand unshaken through all generations. 
Would you renew us in hope that we may be awake and alert, watching for the glorious return of Jesus Christ, our judge and savior, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Now, will you please stand with us for the reading of our passage this morning? Our scripture comes from Luke 1, 39 through 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, the mother of my Lord, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things in me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. You guys can be seated. All right. Well, happy Christmas greeting to you all. Uh, these four weeks will be uh, a journey through a couple of hymns or songs in the first two chapters of Luke. Uh, this first one is from Mary. Uh, it's known as the Magnificat, and uh, it is her declaration of praise to God in response to the great things that he has done for her. And so we, we like Christmas can just get just rambunctious, right? And so we really want to take our time and, and separate in some ways our, our time here on Sunday morning from some of the rambunctiousness of the culture around us. Um, while we encourage, like, live into the season, we actually stop doing our city group weekly meetings to encourage, like, extra time, make sure that you're, you're with your family, that you're with your friends, that you're you know, going to work parties or neighborhood parties and things like that. Like, we really want to encourage engagement in Christmas time, uh, in the way that this world does Christmas time. But in the midst of doing that, we need to pay attention to the fact that so much of what's stirring around us has absolutely no connection to the historical confession of faith, and that is that we needed Jesus to come. That's why he came. He didn't just come because it would be a neat holiday for thousands of years. Uh, he didn't just come to give us sparkly lights and, and wonderful decorations or time off from work. He came because the world was black. 
It was dark and it was hopeless and it was in need of something that it could not get by itself. And so God himself had to come and fulfill a need that we had. This is the reality of Advent. And we pause with kind of reflections and remembrances and readings to help sink our hearts into that realization because often we just fly by it because everything's so jolly and bright, which listen, it is jolly and bright, but why? Why is it jolly and bright? Why can Mary sing this song? That's the whole point of what we're going to get to today. Why would a soul respond with this eruption of faith and praise? It's because salvation is great, because the depths from which we've been rescued are deep and the heights to which we've been lifted are high and our God alone has done that work. That's why let's engage, but that's also why let's reflect, right? Otherwise, we'll see this entire season completely escape us and the reason for it kind of go past us. Uh, One of the things, uh, Nathan mentioned this a minute ago in announcements, one of the things we try to do to kind of bring us together around this Christmas time is our lessons and carols night. Um, So on December 17th, I hope you can come out at 6 p.m. and join us at Green Bench Brewing Company and sing. It'll be a wonderful time together. Um, I also encourage you to engage with the church family. Being off from city groups doesn't mean that we don't love community here, and so hopefully... Uh, you can celebrate the season in some way with the folks that you love here at Stonehouse Church. So we hope, uh, anyway, with all of that, um, that that Jesus is just larger for us, um, that what he has done to save us and rescue us would be the utmost of our celebration, that gifts, parties, and good drinks and food would be wonderful things, but they would all pair, pale in comparison to what God has done. And so our hope is that we would move into somewhat of a posture of worship like Mary does in this song. And uh, Heather just read kind of the context for Mary's song and then read Mary's song and kind of like the Psalms. uh, This is actually this song that she sung was uh, uh, very close in reflection to Psalms of Thanksgiving. Um, And so we're going to read it just like that last series that we, well, we're kind of in the middle of it, actually, that series that we've been doing in Psalms. Uh, We're going to read through it again a couple of times to try to help us kind of move into uh, the poetic or the song-like movement of what she confesses here. So let's read it again, Uh, Luke 1, 46 to 55. I'm going to skip the the prelude part that Heather read and go right into the song. It says this, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Let's pray again as we ask God to illuminate this passage to our hearts. God, we love you and are so thankful uh, for the opportunity to gather here freely. Uh, Lord, we do love this time of year. Um, It is wonderful to recognize that uh, the whole world, uh, whether they realize it or not, is celebrating our Savior. Uh, and so in the midst of all of this celebration, God, I pray that you would help our hearts latch on to the truth um, that we are in desperate need of a Savior. 
Um, that all time in history, mankind has needed a Savior, that that Savior has come, and that he has brought us uh, to God through his work, and that now we again are waiting for him. We are waiting for his return. And so, Lord, through these words that uh, uh, Mary sang, would you open our hearts to see uh, what it is that we are uh, exalting, what it is that we are giving praise um, to, what are we thanking you for? Uh, and that as we learn this, God, it would, it would continually uh, humble us down into the ground that we might be lifted uh, to the high places um, seated with you, uh, knowing that your work has been done on our behalf. Uh, we love you, uh, and we need you desperately this hour, God. I need you. Uh, our hearts need you. Our ears need you. Um, would you pull us aside from all of our distractions and uh, speak into our hearts in the midst of uh, the swirling circumstances that we find ourselves in, God, and rescue us by your truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So this um, Magnificat, uh, which is kind of the Latin term for the first word in her song, which is, is translated for us, magnifies. Uh, this whole song is, is, is a response of Mary uh, magnifying or praising God. Um, and this response is... Um, uh, contextually, it's, it's in a place where she's visited Elizabeth, who is a relative. Uh, Elizabeth is old, uh, and Elizabeth was barren, um, but God visited Elizabeth and her husband with a miraculous child, and so Elizabeth is carrying John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, uh, and so as she's carrying that child, Mary comes and visits, uh, and the response was that Elizabeth's uh, baby jumps around inside with joy because of the presence of Jesus in the womb of Mary just being feet away. It's kind of a, a spectacular thing when you think about it. Um, but even more spectacular is what happened right before that. Uh, and so turn backwards with me a little bit or flip back on your app uh, to Luke one twenty six. We need to read this to kind of continue to help us frame this whole uh, song of Mary's within her experience, and why is it that she would be singing this? So uh, Luke opens up. It's one of the best books to uh, Luke 1 and 2. is one of the best places to read kind of the Christmas story. It's one of the most complete um, examples or, or timelines of the Christmas story. And so first you have the birth of John, uh, the baptizer foretold, and then you have the birth of Jesus foretold. And that's what we're going to read here, starting in verse 26. So it says this, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. That's just basically saying she was really perplexed and confused. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Oof. That was a lot. 
Let's continue, 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born uh, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative uh, Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So we, we know this story. We're familiar with this story. Uh, but we retell this story because this story bears the most significant weight for us as followers of Jesus because Jesus being the son of God, being born of a virgin as is rooted in our beliefs and in the historic Christian faith is uh, an essential marker to the distinctive nature of Jesus that he is both 100% God and 100% man. And the way that that was made possible is through the Holy Spirit's miraculous conceiving of the child in the womb of a virgin. There is no other way to explain the Son of God than for it to have happened in that way. And so Mary is told this, this tremendous news, right? She's told that she's going to have a son, even though she's a virgin, and that she should name this son Jesus, which is a name that is closely related to Joshua in the Bible, which means the Lord is my salvation. She's told that the baby will not be conceived by her with a man, but rather it will be conceived through the Holy Spirit. She's told that this child will be great, that this child will be holy, that this child will be called the Son of the Most High, and that this child will sit on the throne of King David, which for her as a follower of the way of Israel, as a person who was in the kingdom, uh, whose throne David was established over, that was significant news. We talked about it in the last psalm that we walked through, that the, the throne of David enduring forever was a promise that had yet to be fulfilled. And so Mary's told, your son's going to sit on that throne. Just tremendous news that she's given. The angel tells her that he will reign over Israel forever and that his kingdom will have no end. And so she responds tremendously with faith. It's interesting that the thing she questions most is, is the biology, <laughs> right? This kid is going to be God's son. He's going to save the whole world. He's going to sit on a throne forever. His kingdom is never going to end. And she's like, I've never been with a guy. Like, that's her. It's interesting. Like her, it's actually a very faith-filled response. She's like, yes, yes, yes. Yes. How? It's kind of how she responds. It's tremendous. And when you uh, parallel that with the response of the prophecy of John the Baptist coming, it's a stronger faith-filled response than the father of John the Baptist who's like, yeah, I don't think so. And then the angel's like, you're never going to talk again until your son's born. That, that whole thing is kind of interesting what happens. So Mary responds with faith. And not only does she respond with, with uh, receptive faith, but it, she also responds with active faith. Because what's the very next thing she does? I've got to go see Elizabeth. Right? Because 
she knows this woman is in her family. This woman is years and years and years and years past childbearing age, and suddenly she's got a baby. She's like, okay, if it's going down with Elizabeth, I know it's going to be going down with me, so let's go see. And sure enough, she shows up, and Elizabeth's six months pregnant. It's just astonishing to her. And so then Elizabeth's visit, or Mary's visit with Elizabeth, as Heather read earlier, is, is a moment of confirmation for Mary. And Elizabeth says, you're more blessed than any woman has ever been. Your name is going down in history, girl. This is amazing what God is doing in you. And Mary's response is to sing this praise, this hymn of praise, the Magnificat. The first two verses, and Mary said, verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary is enraptured by what is happening around her, right? My spirit and my soul is a way of her saying everything in me is reacting with praise to God right now. There is, there is not a molecule in my body that does not say, how great is God? This magnificent response that shows us what a response of beholding God and his work should really be like even in our lives. As we look and say, God, what you have done is tremendous. This news is, is too great for me to, to hold in. Right? This is why Christian communities over centuries have been marked with singing, because it's our response. Right? And I just had a conversation with Ben this week about how often our culture responds with more jubilant singing than we do. Right? And this isn't a judgment of like, hey, you need to do a certain thing during worship, but just think about how we respond to things that bring elation to us. Right? Have you been to the show where the crowd's all, right? The response is a total body response because there's joy involved in what's going on. And we were made for this kind of response. We were made for a response that encompasses our mind and our will and our emotions. A response that says, God, you are so good. What you have done is tremendous. The news of it, as it reaches my ears, brings me to a place where my soul and my spirit respond in glad praise to a God who has done good things. And so we join with Mary and with all people since her in singing of the great goodness of God. That's why our songs reflect the good news, because we repeat the good news and respond to the good news through singing. We say, this is what God has done, and we say, this is how I respond to what God has done, right? We align with Mary in this way where our spirit and our souls magnify the Lord. Now, one thing that Mary does in here is she names God something that is of profound importance. It's the last three words of verse 47. She says, God, my Savior. God, my Savior. Mary identifies with all of humanity in this moment and says, I am a sinner in need of salvation. God is my salvation, right? So anybody who would tell you that Mary did not need a Savior is wrong. Anybody who would tell you that she was uh, flawless and perfect and sinless is wrong. She was fallen, 
And she knew, just like you and me, just like the prophets of old, she knew that to find salvation, someone would have to bring it to her. And that God indeed was the one who was doing that work. And so Mary identifies in this moment as a sinner in need of a savior. Let's move into verse 48 and 49. It says this, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary's identification as a sinner moves right into this next state, and that is the state where she recognizes her position before God. Right? These beautiful words. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Right? This is Mary standing up and saying, I don't deserve one word of this great promise. I don't deserve a single act of God's great salvation coming to me. I don't stand here as a praiseworthy, praiseworthy figure in the history of God's redemptive purposes. I stand here as a humble sinner extolling the great goodness of God. The whole reason, that the, the basis, this is one of her two bases for this praise. The basis for Mary's praise is God's good and undeserved action toward her. Somebody who is humble and of lowly estate, right? It aligns so closely with what Jesus uh, very famously uh, early on taught in the Sermon on the Mount that Blessed are, what was the beginning? The poor in spirit. There was a realization amongst those who received such a great salvation that they did not stand in a place to deserve it and they weren't able to muster it up themselves. But that God alone was bringing such a great salvation. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. The angel said, you have received favor. Favor meaning unmerited grace. It was a choice of God to take Mary into this position. And it was the response of Mary to say, I don't deserve to be here at all. It's fun to see that Mary's inclination is to regard God as great and herself as small. And let's be honest, that's not an easy place to get to. We often see ourselves as great and God as our servant. <laughs> My purposes reign triumphant. God, would you help me fulfill my purposes is often our prayer. God, here's what I think I should do to, to find significance in this world. Would you help me to get there? Mary's response is, I'm a humble and of lowly estate. I don't deserve to be in this place. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is our response when we see the work of God? Do we follow in this tradition of being humbled by it, or do we elevate ourselves? It's interesting that Mary was poor, that in her culture and in her time, she was somebody who was just kind of passed over as, as a nobody, as somebody insignificant, and so are so many that God chooses to work in in profound and wonderful ways. And God chooses to do that. He chooses to give her the great gift of being the mother of Messiah and to honor her. And in that honor, what happens? He receives praise because she doesn't deserve anything, but he's given it to her anyway. So therefore, the one who's given it gets the honor for it because it's been his mercy and his favor and his great work that he does for her. 
And guys, we talk about this all the time, but this is the position of receiving grace that enables us to truly endure as followers of Jesus. Because if you have to do something to earn the mercy and grace and favor of God, then for the rest of your life, you sure as better keep that thing up, right? That duty, that obligation, that religious uh, ritual. You better keep doing that thing that earned God's attention. Otherwise, oh boy, he might leave you. That's what filth religion pulls us into is this obligatory pressure of continuing to do somersaults for a God who needs to be impressed by us. That's rank religion that we should dismiss with everything in us. The glorious gospel of grace tells us that here we sit as lowly servants and God has loved us. And God, by his grace, has chosen us. He's pursued us. He has rescued us. And so what is our response? It's a response of praise and adoration and thankfulness, not a response of keep trying harder to keep God's attention so that he'll stay happy with me. The only way he's possibly ever satisfied with me is because he looks on Christ and not on me anyways. And so we maintain the following of grace because everything that has been done for us, everything that will be done for us, it's all on God and not on us. And when that's true, there's a liberation that happens that leads us into this kind of joyous response that we see in Mary. Now, she also mentions that all generations will call her blessed. The reasoning for that blessing she sees is because of God's mighty hand working for her. She knows, right? There's, there's a there's a humble recognition here. If, if what this angel just said about me is true, then everybody for all time future is going to know my name, right? I mean, that's a big moment. None of us have had that moment, <laughs> right? You might have put your name on a billboard and you're like, oh, people are going to know me for a bit, Right? or on a business card, or on a website, or on the side of a van. I don't know, wherever you put our name. Right? Like, all right, people are going to know me. They're gonna... But Mary's soul is being saturated with this concept that she'll always be known because of what God had done for her. And what does it do for her? It humbles her to the ground. Right? Wow, God, you have done great things for me. And she confesses that his name is holy. Now we know when we follow the story, and we're not going to do this today, but we know that this choosing of Mary did not lead to an easy life, right? And we also know that this choosing of Mary did not mean that she'll get everything right, okay? Because almost instantly, she's a derision among her people. She's an outcast. She's a pregnant virgin. So either people are thinking, yeah, right. Right? Yeah, right, girl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Either that or crazy. Verifiably insane locker. Like, it's one of those two options. It's either this girl is, you know... And should just be kind of brushed. Or this girl's loopy. She's lost her mind. She actually believes that she's a virgin that's pregnant, right? So instantly, 
She's thrust into her community as a reject, as an outcast. That's her new disposition in life. And it's, it's substantiated by the fact that as soon as her husband or her betrothed, her fiancé, finds out about it, he's ready to, what? To issue a certificate of divorce. He's ready to, to say, be gone with you, right? So he enhances this sense of cultural distance that she feels, that this, this rejection comes from her own husband. Thank God an angel shows up to Joseph and is like, yo, dude. Don't do that. <laughs> Stick with her, man. You'll see. It's, it's, it's going to be all good. Like, just hang in there, dude. Right? Like, only an angel visitation could make that happen. So, like, she, it's just as soon as she steps into the fulfillment of all that God has done for her, it's not her work, but his work. But in order to endure in that work, hardship, right? From the get-go, right? And then she has a baby in a barn. I mean, you know, like, really? It's just a barn. That's hardship, you know, I mean, home births are all the rage right now and stuff, but a barn? Like, nobody goes to a barn to have a baby, but Mary did. And then she has to flee to Egypt to save her baby's life. I mean, that's fun. Like, hey, you know, Mayor Kreisman's going to kill your baby. You've got to run to Alabama. It's like, yeah, that's great news. That's what she had to do. She had to pick up and jump town, get out of there. We don't hear much more of her husband, Joseph, so it appears that she loses him somewhere along the way, that he dies, maybe early, I'm not sure. She has other kids, and as Jesus begins his ministry, what does she do? She goes and tries to stop him. I mean, talk about a mistake, right? Jesus is starting to teach and starting to gather crowds and starting to heal the sick and cast out demons. And Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters knock on the door and are like, hey, send the crazy guy out here. We need to have a chat. I mean, so imperfect, fumbling through this thing along the way. And eventually, of course, she watches her son killed in just the most horrific way by the occupying Roman army. But later, and there's tremendous news, she's numbered among the disciples waiting in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. She endures. She endures it all. But man, it's a tough road, right? And for us, we need to see as God works for us, as he does all of the necessary work to bring us salvation, sends Jesus, Jesus lives perfectly for us, dies in substitution of our sin, rises from death forever to give us life, that although all these things have been done for us, they are not a declaration that we will skip hardships. In fact, Jesus promised that as we pursue and follow him, we will actually endure these hardships. And so Mary's life was not perfect, was not easy, but God was faithful to her. And he held her up through all those times. Verse 50 of her song kind of makes a, a bit of a change. She goes from talking about herself to talking about others, it says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So Mary, as we talked about before, is aware of her need for a Savior as she confesses that God is her Savior, but she's also aware of the world's need for a Savior. 
She recognizes that she is a needy soul in the midst of a crowd of needy souls that are existing on a planet that is dark and in dire need of a Savior to come and save it. Right? And so our soul searching begins here as we look at this Advent season. Do we see the world the way that Mary saw the world, the way that the Bible presents the world, in that it is a dark place in need of a Savior? Do we, do we see the world that way? We often don't, right? How do we know that we don't? Well, we, we're usually pretty preoccupied with getting things that this world will tell us will make our life better, right? So that sort of disposition affirms to us that we don't think this world is in darkness. We think there's some really great stuff in this world that if I just get a hold of some of that, then life will be what life is supposed to be, right? And we categorize, it, it can easily categorize this stuff in, in either looks or achievements or, or possessions, right? The world says if you look this way, then there will be certain you know, satisfaction in the world will be good, right? If you attain these things, if you have at least enough of them or enough of the newer ones, or just more than that other person, if you have those, then this world will be what it's supposed to be, and you'll finally have fulfillment and peace and rest, right? Or go make a name for yourself. Go get that paper on the wall. Go start that business. Go have that large of a bank account. Go establish your reputation somewhere. And I tell you what, guys, to watch the world fall apart... In these ways. I mean, I don't know if you're reading the news lately, right? To watch the world break to shreds as it pursues these things is just an unveiling of what has always been true. And it's a grace from God for us to see them and to be cut to the heart by observing them and to go, oh man, I will not be fine if I pursue those things. I will not be satisfied if I get that possession. I will not, right? Because they've got it. And whoever you want to name, I mean, every category is named right now. <laughs> I don't care which side of the political scale you're on, named. I don't care which side of art or sports you're on, named. Like, no matter who you're a fan of, there's exposure. Like, God's just, the bottom's falling out of so many things, and this is a, a real view of what the world is like. And we need to stop and go, I gladly participate in this world of darkness thinking that it's light. I am fooled. I am tricked. I am all in in some ways, thinking that I too might find everything I need here on this planet, here in this world, here in this fallen place. Mary says, everybody needs mercy. From generation to generation. This sermon series is titled, The Weary World Rejoices. Those words come from part of one of my favorite Christmas songs, O Holy Night. One of the verses says, 
Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. I hope, even though this seems super dark and heavy around Christmas time, I hope that during Advent, we can settle into this realization of what our world has to offer us and that it is bankrupt, that it will not ultimately satisfy us, that our souls were made for far more than trinkets and drink and food and pleasure, but our souls were made for the very one who created us, for the God of all eternity to come and fill them. And then I'll tell you what, when God's fullness is tasted by the soul and there are still pleasures in the world to be experienced, they get to be experienced in light of the greater pleasure of knowing God. And instead of becoming for us a salvation, they become for us just a wonderful thing to enjoy, right? And so that's the glory of getting the true uh, getting a true grasp on what this world has to offer us. It's, it doesn't have anything to offer us. Only God can fill my soul. And now when my soul is filled by God, okay, the stuff that the world has to offer, I don't have to look at it to fill my soul. I can just treat it as what it is. And it's actually way better that way. When I look at a job as not the defining characteristic of my entire life, but as a place where I can serve and fulfill my calling to God. Right When I look at a relationship, not as the thing that will make me happy, but as I, I just look at that as a gift from God to enjoy because the only thing that can truly make me happy is the Lord. Right, So much of our angst, so much of our depression, so much of our, our, our sorrows are tied up in the things that we've lost because they, we thought they were going to be God to us. So may God be God to us. And then the things can just be things to us. And the people can be people to us. And the food can be food to us. And the parties can be parties to us. And the decorations can be decorated. They can just be what they are. They don't have to be God. May God open our eyes to see that there is only the one thing that can satisfy our souls. That's why Mary says, like does the rest of Scripture, that the mercy of God is for those who fear Him. Now the fear of God, there's a Paul Tripp is a helpful quote from him. It says, The fear of the Lord means that I carry around with me such a deep awareness, awe, and reverence for the power, holiness, wisdom, and grace of God that I would not think of doing anything other than living for his glory. And so fear has so much more than to do with, with recognizing the grandeur of God than it does uh, have to do with being afraid of God, right? So to fear God is to respect him for what he is that he is altogether separate from anything that's ever existed, that he is not just some superpowered man, but he is, he is God himself who has existed from all eternity past, that no one is like him, no one will ever be like him. He doesn't even have to try, he just is because he's God. When we recognize the weightiness of who he truly is, then so much of, of all the other stuff in life, it falls into its right place. And so those who fear the Lord will see his mercy. Those who recognize that God is ultimate, that he is the only possible thing that can live up to all the hype. 
that he is the only thing that can meet the needs of a vacant soul, that he is the only praiseworthy and glorious, glorious center of gravity for all of humanity. God's bigness is extolled here by Mary because he has done the work to bring about what man could not bring about. And that's what verse 51 through 53 is all about. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Now, when you read this, you kind of think, oh man, looks like God's being really mean to people, right? But he's just exposing everything that I just talked about right? God bringing salvation exposes all of our attempts at salvation as bankrupt and false. God doing what only God could do to save our weary souls shows us that all the stuff that we try to do to save our own weary souls can never last, right? So that's what it's about, the proud coming low, right? Because men stand up and say, man, I think I can, I think I can do this. Like, I think I can find significance, I think I can make my name great. And God's salvation makes our name small. It shows that we could not do it, that he had to do it. Right? He brings down the mighty from their thrones, the exalted ones, those who sit enthroned on the things that they promise others will fulfill them. They're not fulfilled. They're not fulfilled. Solomon's one of the greatest examples of this. And he wrote Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, right? He had... He had the most dominant kingdom out of all the kings in the Old Testament. And he looked around and he said, nothing fulfills. Nothing fulfills. He was humbled in that to realize that God alone can bring salvation. What's glorious about Mary's recognition is that she has not attained those great things and that her soul is hungry, right? She's destitute in the view of the world. She's destitute walking about in sackcloth and ashes, right? The the way the world looks at her is poor little girl from that sad little family with not a dollar to her name and no identity at all. Poor little girl, right? That's the way the world is looking at Mary. And because of God's work to choose her, to give her this grace, this gift of God, she is elevated to a height that no other person hardly in the history of the world has ever seen, right? Because of God's great work to establish her in that place. And so God lifts the humble in that way. Amen? When we see, I, I am not the greatest thing since sliced bread. I am not the end all, be all. I am not worthy I am humble and I am low, but look at what God does for those. He fills them with good things. Finally, in verse 54 and 55, Mary confesses that God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary's recognition of what has been promised to happen for her and through her is that it is the great and final fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham. And what is it that was promised to Abraham? It was promised, Abraham, come out, look at the stars. 
See how many there are. They're without number. Look at the sand on the sea shore. You can't count the grains. That's how many people will be blessed through your family. And Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise to Abraham because through Jesus then all peoples, through all places and all times, all kinds of people, the high, the low, the rich, the poor, the forsaken and the remembered, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, everybody who would come can come when they come in the name of Jesus. All peoples are blessed through that lineage. It is a fulfillment A promise, just like we were reading in our readings today, that longing, the yearning, the hoping, the the aching that was in the hearts of these people, it was fulfilled, and it was fulfilled in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says this beautifully in the first four verses of Hebrews 1. We'll close with this. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed to the heir, the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is, Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to, to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." The truth of Advent is that Jesus was a, the coming of Jesus was a fulfillment of a long promised Messiah, a long awaited Messiah, that Jesus was the fulfillment of that. And what we celebrate as we stand here in this day, in this century, is that yes, Jesus came, but yet we still have the longing, right? The longing is still here because we live in the midst of this world of darkness. And while we have a foretaste of what is to come, it is not yet completely fulfilled. So the hope of Advent is Jesus came and he fulfilled it. So we can bank on the fact that God who said, I will come and fulfill what I have promised, we know it will happen. We know as sure as Jesus did come that he will come again because he who promised that brought it to fulfillment. And so therefore, our waiting is not in vain. And our walking in this world with that kind of depth of longing still in us, it is not in vain because it will be fulfilled because Jesus will return and he will set the kingdom on high for all times. Amen. So we pray and hope that we find what Mary found and that that there is a God who achieves for us what we cannot achieve for ourselves. May we find him reaching down into our lowly estate and lifting us high because of his great work, because of the strength of his arm. And I hope that this Advent season we come to worship the one who was sent, who lived, who died, who rose to fulfill our deepest longings. We know we still have them. Right? We chase after all sorts of stuff. May God settle our souls and help us see that he is our chief fulfillment. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know how easy it is to look around the world and think that we can be fulfilled with things or people 
possessions or achievements or looks or attention. God, these things just point to just the the utter sickness of our soul that we need something bigger than ourselves. God, it's hard. It's hard with the constant messages. It's hard with the with the ever-present opportunity to pursue new things. It's hard with uh, gadgets, uh, shiny stuff. It's hard with many promises all around us. It's hard for us to, to buy into the truth that, that you alone will be the full satisfaction of our heart's longings. So God, I pray this Advent would sink us into that truth, not so that we get depressed and like dark and all heavy, but so that the rescue of God becomes so magnificent to us. So that what Jesus has done, the cost of coming and living and dying, that these realities would drive us into worship because we know how desperately we needed them and how without God, without you, without your work, we are utterly helpless and hopeless. So Lord, don't sink us, Lord, we pray, into depression, but Lord, lift us into exuberant joy, thanking you and praising you and celebrating you for what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. We know that what you promised was fulfilled in him, and so we know that what you have promised will also again be fulfilled in him. Help us to wait expectantly, hoping for that return. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.